Lisa, over to you. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, Church. Let us turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 44. I will be reading from the NIV version this morning. Before we read God's word, may we just prepare our hearts and minds to pray. Let us do that now. Heavenly Father God, glory to you in all ways, in everything and all that we do. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that you have um, prepared your word to be delivered by Jason this morning. And we pray that you bless him abundantly to um, get the message out to us in a holy way. Lord, we thank you so much that your word is pure and whole. Help it to transform our hearts and minds this morning to a deeper level. Help us to understand your commandments, to love your, you and to love others. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that this is executed in a very deep, deep way this week in our lives, to be able to pray for others in a deep way, despite our own struggles. We thank you, God. Bless this word to our <clears throat> souls, minds and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the word of the Lord. So let's, let us start. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 44. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is the here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second one is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, said the teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw <clears throat> that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. 
As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honour and bequests. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I'm on the screen. Morning, uh, church. It's really good to have this opportunity to preach. Um, wish we could do it in person, but um, yeah, it's nice that we can do it online still, uh, that we can still stay connected. So yeah, keep your Bibles open. We're going to go through this whole passage. It's pretty long, um, but I think there's kind of like one piece to it. So keep it open and we'll keep referring to it. We might even jump around. But we'll get you to flick your eyes to some of the context a bit as well. So as you do, you start off a sermon of an, of an analogy. So um, the analogy that I'm going to start us off with is the idea of the one. You know, when you were younger, sometimes we, we uh, thought and we talked about the idea of the one. You know, is he the one? Is she the one? That kind of thing. And so like, you know, the whole premise of a romantic comedy is about how there really is the one out there somewhere. And it's a quest overcoming all odds. You've got to find that one and for that fairy tale ending. And even pop songs as well. We know that pop songs are often about the one. You know, they sing about Romeos and Juliets and you beg them, please don't go. And sometimes Christians talk about being in love with Jesus as well. Like he's the one. And I thought about this for a bit and I can imagine how it can be cringy for an outsider looking in. Uh, especially, you know, the songs that we sing sometimes. But as a Christian, you know, I genuinely do love Jesus. And I'm sure many of you guys would say the same kind of thing as well. Uh, but what, what does it actually mean? You know, how do you go about, how would you go about explaining your love for Jesus to someone who isn't a Christian? It's hard to get across what it means to love Jesus um, because there's a lot of like, cultural things that hang on to the idea of loving someone. And so then I thought of this other analogy that might be helpful for Christians to understand things from an outsider's perspective. You know, because I reckon this idea of like loving Jesus. It's kind of like um, asking someone to become a Christian and come across like you're know, inviting them into an arranged marriage. It's kind of like an arranged marriage with Jesus. You know, for example, you might, you tell your single friend, um, hey, there's someone I know, you should meet them. And uh, you should definitely uh, commit your entire life to them in the covenant of marriage. It's a pretty uh, hard sell. You, know, you can say things like they're great, you know, just trust me, just meet them one time. You'll see. But for this person you're trying to convince, this outsider, 
there's at least one big problem. You know, who is this guy? How can I make a big commitment or that big of a commitment to someone that I don't even know? And so one of the biggest challenges is simply to do with knowing the one that you're marrying. You know, because even if they are the one, a person needs to know them well enough. And so even if Jesus is the one, a person first needs to know Jesus enough. And I reckon it would be spot on to say that the gospel author here, Mark, he wants us to know Jesus enough so that we would commit our lives to him. So it's not that far from setting up an arranged marriage. And so my hope for us all, as we think through this second half of Mark chapter 12, is just that we would love Jesus a little more. So we're going to know him a little more, or maybe a lot more. But it's pretty simple. So our goal for the next 25 minutes or so is just that you and I would love Jesus more. And I reckon if we achieve that goal, it'll be pretty obvious and natural that, you know, how we might explain and show people what loving Jesus is about. So in today's uh, passage, we're actually jumping right into a scene midway. So Jesus is in Jerusalem already, in the capital city, the big smoke. And since arriving, he's been in conflict with the religious bigwigs. You know, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes. Those are the three categories of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They're the religious fat cats, you might say. So they don't love Jesus. And they don't like him either. So there's this um, tension in there. And this, is, this part is basically the last straw before they rise up to arrest Jesus in the garden. So these three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they've already... Um, been confronted by Jesus's authority and they don't like it. So first you have the Pharisees who rose up to quote trap him in his talk from chapter 12 verse 13 so just before this. So they come up first and they try to trap Jesus and then next the Sadducees come up to bat and they try to give Jesus a curveball about marriage in verse 18 or from verse 18. But Jesus doesn't break a sweat. Um, they're not even on his level. And so now in today's passage you have a third representation, uh, a representative, you have a single scribe coming up to Jesus with another, with another question. And so we start at verse 28. So the scribe has heard Jesus's answers to the previous two groups, the previous two groups who were not honest in their questioning. And this scribe sees that Jesus had answered them well. So there's like, um, there's no bad motives in this one, no tricks or tests. It seems like he's, um, he's different from the other religious leaders, as in this scribe. It seems like the scribe just wants to ask a question uh, that he wants a good answer to. And it's a good question. He wants to know what is the most important law. Because the Jews were on about following God's law. Um, practicing God's laws really mattered to the Jews back then. And a lot of their traditions back then have come through to today. Um, and so get, to help you get a vibe of what some of the Jewish law is like, I found a great step-by-step -step guide for meal hand washing straight from Shabbat.com. Shabbat so it's not a holy text, but it's an explanation of what a Jew could do for um, meal hand washing. <clears throat> so I'll read it out. So firstly, um, do this only before eating a meal with bread or matzah. Halakha also requires washing before cake if it is eaten as a full meal. And bread is considered the staple food of all foods. Potatoes don't count. So you remove your rings, unless you never remove them, in which case they're considered part of your hand. 
and then you fill a cup of water and you pour it twice on your right hand and then you repeat on the left. But if you're left-handed, you do it the other way around. You do your left hand first and your right. And you have to make sure that the water covers your entire hand until the wrist bone with each pour. And you separate your, your fingers slightly to allow the water between them. And then after washing, you lift your hands, chest high, and you say the following blessing. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of the hands. But you only say this blessing if you intend to eat more than two ounces of bread. Like I'll just, I'll stop there. You get the picture. It might sound over the top, um, and it is over the top. I saw some of the comments on the website. I saw people asking about whether tortillas count as bread. And uh, what do you do if you don't have a cup of a cup to pour the water, like an actual cup? But I can, I can kind of understand where they're coming from, you know, because the Jews, they want to obey God's law accurately and faithfully. Even if they've confused themselves in the process of all these add-ons. And so it's with this kind of heart, this kind of confused but wanting to be faithful heart that the scribe comes to Jesus with this question. What is the most important commandment? And Jesus' answer, from verse 29, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Love God. So Jesus isn't confused. He doesn't complicate it. And he didn't complicate things um, in his previous two responses either to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus shows a special authority over God's law. And he answers what no one else can answer. And his answers silenced him. So let's just think about this answer for a little bit right now. Jesus here is basically quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema. It's a daily prayer said by Jews even today. And so he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God of all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, every five-year-old Jewish boy in Israel today could recite the, this Shema to you. In Hebrew, not in English. Um, it's super important and super famous. And its opening line is profound. That God is one. And what does it actually mean for God to be one? It's obvious, but it's worth saying that God is one means that there's only one God. It's not rocket science. Um, but how, how often have you stopped to think about it? When I read that the Lord is one, my first thought was in terms of quantity, you know, there's only one God. There's actually a lot in that. Um, you know, wherever you are right now, if you just look around at your furniture, at your houseplants, at the pet, you can look at them. Or maybe you can look out the window and see what's out there. All these things, everything actually has their source in one God. And so there's a kind of simplicity and a certainty in that. I don't mean just the, the material things that they're made out of. I mean, like why they're there as well. The choices that were made, the timing of things. One God organized it. It's not a cooperative effort. It wasn't chance. And it's not, you know, just the way it is. It's actually one God is behind everything. And so maybe you've stopped recently to think about COVID-19 and its impact on the world. 
or you've had to make some big life choices recently. You know, if there's only one God, then everything, all these things, revolve around him. And we just hold on to that. It's really simple. But if we add other gods into the picture, it's no longer simple, is it? Everything gets really confusing. Just like for this scribe, he doesn't know what to do. All these religious leaders and the traditions, they've made this mess. And it's become such a mess that impressive piety, you know, just looking holy becomes a god. And behind that, uh, when you really, really want to be pious, uh, you're just serving yourself. And in a really, in a very real way, you make yourself God. There's actually the, the deep-rooted selfishness and sin on the show. But to use Jesus' language coming up later, it's sin dressed up in beautiful robes. So unlike the scribes, Jesus clears everything up and he brings us back to the scriptures. He says really simply, really clearly, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God of all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second half follows. Love, the na- love your neighbor as yourself. So it's a love God and love our neighbors. First, love God. Second, love our neighbors. And we shouldn't ever forget the first in our quest for the second. Because loving God is the main game. He's the one. He's, he's the one. And the greatest commandment is to love God. A lot of people want Christians just to focus on loving our neighbors. You might have heard it yourself. You know, I've heard it said that churches should um, just evolve. That's the word they use, evolve, into charitable organizations. You know, so just, just do good, but drop the evangelism, drop the doctrine and the God stuff. Just do good. And a lot of Christians in their churches have actually fallen for this trap. A lot of people, want to, a lot of people in the world want to imagine that you can have the good without the God. You know, as if they have power in themselves to love and give and sacrifice. As if they can love their neighbors as themselves and they don't need God. And a lot of people want to think that. And it makes me really sad because the reality is that there is one God, isn't there? And he's our God. And he wants, he wants us to respond to him by loving him. By treating him as the one. This, this invitation to love God from the Bible is special. I'm not an expert. From what I, from what I know about Islam, um, the most important thing for a Muslim is to submit to God. I'm told that the word Islam literally means submission. So for the Muslim, loving God is not the main game. And for the people who want Christians to do good but drop God, they just see God as a rule giver, like a source of morals. Like many of the scribes who are obsessed with the law. They don't see the precious truth here that God is inviting us to love him, to be in relationship with him. They don't see that the one God wants us to love him. So like we read in verse 33, God wants us to love him more than he wants burnt offerings and sacrifices. So when we make it all about loving our neighbors, or when people do that, when they separate loving our neighbors from loving God, they're actually rejecting God. And so Jesus brings us back to the order of things. God is one, love him, love your neighbor. 
And so then if we go on to verse 35, it's Jesus's turn to ask the questions. Um, he's about to use the question to make a really big claim. Because uh, Jesus has just said it's all about loving God, recognizing that God is one. God is God alone. And now Jesus is about to say that the greatest commandment is actually about loving him. Jesus said, love God. And now he's going to connect the dots. And Jesus says, love me. So Jesus opens up Psalm 110. It's one of the key Psalms. It's a Psalm of King David. The son that looks forward to a mighty king who will destroy God's enemies. And Jesus just wants to point out the strange way in, it's, in which it starts. He doesn't really go into the psalm very much. He just points out the beginning where it says, the Lord said to my Lord. You know, so get this, Jesus says that David says that God says. It's a bit confusing, so just follow along with the words in front of you. And I'll break it down. So Jesus says that David says that God says the following to my Lord. So Jesus is basically asking, who is God speaking to? The Lord, brackets God, is speaking to David's Lord. But if, if this is about the promised mighty king, who is a son of David, how can David's son be greater than him? The Jews, they're all looking forward to David's son, the king promised to Israel. But this son is greater than David because he is David's Lord. Because David's son is the Lord himself. David's son is God. Jesus has been trying to, or he has been establishing his authority over and over again. He's rising higher and higher over evil spirits, nature, religious leaders, over the law. And he goes higher still. He's not even high enough. Jesus even has authority over the mighty King David. And his questions reveal that, or his question reveals that their expectations for the Messiah are too low. If they're looking forward to a son of David who's going to restore the kingdom to Israel like it was back in David's time, then their expectations are too low. Jesus is better than David, and so his kingdom is better than David's. The religious leaders are off the mark, and again, they confuse those they teach. But this leader, he, he brings a better kingdom with people he will protect and teach and a kingdom that will never end. And this king will be higher than King David because this king is the Lord himself. You see the audacity of Jesus? Jesus is claiming to be God. And when you think about how crazy it becomes when you connect these two passages, the greatest commandment is to love God. And then Jesus says, I am God, love me. We've just said that God is one, and Jesus is now saying, I am the one. Loving me is the greatest commandment. This is incredible. It's an enormous request. You think about the arranged marriage analogy again. So imagine you're not a Christian, and you're hearing that the greatest commandment from Jesus' own lips is to love him. What do you think? It's huge, isn't it? Would you want to meet this guy and get to know him? You've got to be pretty bold to say something like this. And you can see that being a Christian can't just be a hobby or something you do on a Sunday or at Christmas and Easter. Jesus is very clearly making a claim on our lives because he is the one that the whole romantic plot revolves around. He's the main character. 
He's the king. He's the love of our lives. He's the one. So how about we just meet a bit more of him now? We'll finish off by meeting Jesus in verses 38 to 44. I really like this scene. You've got to imagine this part like a, like a play on a stage. So then the verse 37, we read that the great crowd or great throng, I'm reading from ESV, sorry. I, didn't, I should have read down IV, but the great throng heard him gladly. So imagine Jesus in the crowd on the stage. Um, they're in the temple. There's cheering and there's gasping. There's excited chatter ebbing and flowing between the mass of people on stage. And then Jesus, he, he turns to face the audience. Okay? Remember, it's a play. Jesus turns to face the audience. The stage lights are dimmed. Then in a single spotlight, brings attention to Jesus. He's facing, the, facing the, us in the audience. And he says to the audience, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and who have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts to devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And after he says this, you keep picturing it, Jesus stops address, addressing the crowd and he, or addressing the audience and he takes a seat nearby. He just walks over a little bit on the stage and he takes a seat. And then the spotlight that was on him, it moves over to an offering box. And we see, Jesus, we see Jesus watching from a short distance. And what does he see? He sees the rich come up in their long robes, pouring huge amounts of money into the offering box. And then a poor widow enters stage right. She slowly approaches the box. She drops in a couple of copper coins. And just as quietly as she appeared, she disappears from the stage. And so then the spotlight just rests on the lonely offering box. And Jesus sitting on the side, he was watching the whole time. And he gets up. The spotlight moves back to him. He faces the audience and he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And he slowly turns away from the audience and moves, and we move to the next scene. So what do you see? Hopefully you're able to imagine that. Um, what do you see in this scene? I see a man who sees. So let me explain, starting from verse 38. The scribes love the praise of men. They, they love to be seen. Beautiful robes, stacks of cash, pious giving. They loved other people seeing them and praising them and favoring them. But they got seen in a different way that day. As Jesus sat at a distance watching, he saw right through them. He saw the hypocrisy, hypocrisy, he saw their greed. He saw how the scribes did not, did not actually love God as the one, and they actually made themselves God. It's really obvious in what they do. They, they pray long prayers, not to speak with God, but to show off. They put themselves in high and special positions, elevating themselves. They take advantage of widows, getting rich off the poor. 
It's these signs of power, hungry, self-importance that show that they're putting themselves in the place of God. And Jesus sees. And Jesus promises condemnation. But the scribes aren't the only ones that Jesus sees. Jesus sees a poor widow, doesn't he? And did you notice that all that he actually does, the only thing that Jesus does for the poor widow is that he sees her. She doesn't get anything from Jesus. Jesus obviously doesn't give her money to fix her poverty. He doesn't chase after her and just fill her hands with money that she doesn't have. And this part still gets stood out to me. He doesn't even encourage her, does he? Look at verse 43. He only tells his disciples. He just says, he says to his disciples, this widow, she's, she's done right. So Jesus commends her quiet faithfulness. And the way the Mark records it for us, it does the same kind of thing. He doesn't provide anything about her. He doesn't give a name, no backstory, no sad violin music. And we don't even know why she was giving all that she had. You don't know what led her to the offering box that day. Only Jesus knew. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if people don't see her faithfulness because Jesus saw her faithfulness. And she might not have ever known his, com- his uh, commendation. Not until the day that she stood before him and he said the words to her, well done, good and faithful servant. And so what a comfort it is for us today to know that Jesus sees us. He sees those private sacrifices. And when we give with our left and our right hand doesn't know. He sees when we shut the door and we pray. And like this poor widow, you know, when we run life's marathon, marathon, we seek to trust Jesus at every twist and turn. And maybe we don't have a crowd cheering for us. You know, Jesus will be waiting at the finish line. He'll be ready for us. I know that he'll be the one cheering and clapping. Maybe we'll be thirsty, but he's going to give us a cup to drink at the end. And that's the kind of Jesus we meet here. You know, you see, the one that we are invited to love, loves us. When I brought up the arranged marriage analogy at the start, there was the problem of knowing the guy, right? But there's another question that you might have thought of. Another question. Will he love me? If this guy's so great, why would he love me? Why would he bother loving me? But the greatest commandment to love Jesus comes with a promise that Jesus loves you. Your love for Jesus will never be an unrequited love. And this is not just trite, wishful thinking. You might remember the rich young man, the rich young man from a couple chapters ago. Is this like a page earlier? You have your Bibles open. Chapter 10, verse 21. Chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus really loved him. But would the man give away his wealth and love Jesus? Two chapters later, it's no accident that this poor widow is the opposite of the rich young man in every way. There's the obvious differences. She's a poor widow. He's a rich man. But the most important difference, she put in her two, two copper coins, all that she had to live on. But he 
couldn't let go of his many more coins, all that he had. This widow loved God as the one. There's no competition in her eyes, no room for other gods. She threw in those two copper coins, all that she had to live on because her life was not in those two coins. She knew that her life was in one God. Whereas the rich man held onto his money, his God. And, and don't walk away from today with a misunderstanding. It's not about what they did, okay? What we do does not earn God's love. It's the outward actions that show what's going on in their hearts. In his heart, he didn't love God as the one. He didn't love Jesus as the one. And the sad reality is that the scribes who loved themselves and the rich man who loved his money, in their hearts, they've rejected God. They've rejected Jesus. They've turned down a relationship with Jesus for, or for things that will not last and for things that will not love them back. But this poor widow has loved God and she will be welcomed. She will be comforted. She will be forgiven because Jesus loved her. And that can never be taken away from her. Now, so I'm going to wrap up with a couple of quotes, as you do. The very famous one, firstly, from Jim Elliott. He was a missionary to remote South America. He was killed evangelizing a jungle tribe. And he faithfully said, you might have heard this before, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And the second quote, which I think everyone probably knows, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us in Mark. I pray that you would help us to love you, to know what it means to love you in our daily lives. Please help fix our eyes on Jesus, his loving care, what he's already done for us at the cross. Fill our prayers with this kind of peace and joy that comes from knowing Jesus and loving him. And also feel us with an assurance that Jesus does love us and he's already loved us. I pray that this would also help us to love our neighbors as ourselves, that it will be an overflow of that and it'd be deeply connected to that. I pray this all for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.